0: Hey
1: everybody, it's another edition of On One with Angela Rye. This conversation was amazing with two black women who I couldn't just admire more. Alicia Garza, who's the co-creator of Black Lives Matter and the founder of of Black Futures Lab and my dear sister friend and the amazing Dr. Angela Davis, who you all have heard me talk about so much. Of course, I'm named after her. And to be able to share space with both of them in the same conversation on Dr. Martin Luther King's holiday, I just couldn't have asked for a better way to celebrate the day. We talk about so much from justice and equity To what uh, the dream should look like as we continue to advance as a people, what this new administration might mean for us, and how we can best hold them accountable to really truly see the promised land Dr. King so eloquently talked about. It was my pleasure to share space, to moderate this conversation, and I didn't want to be selfish and hog it all to myself. So today I'm sharing it with you. It is a pleasure to be here with you and to President Michael McRobbie for having me on behalf of the iconic Madam Walker Legacy Center located in Indianapolis and Indiana University. It is my pleasure to be here with you all. I wish it could be in person, but alas, we need to be safe. I will be moderating today's conversation and I couldn't be more thrilled. As we celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., we do so against a backdrop of great division in this country. As Joyce earlier shared, in the face of this adversity, Dr. King's ideals of racial equality, diversity and love are more important and relevant than ever. As we honor uh, Dr. King's day, as we honor Martin Luther King day, we do so with two dynamic women who I am just thrilled to share space with today. Uh, Dr. Angela Davis and Alicia Garza, one who I was named after, one who has become one of my very best friends. Um, We do this with this program today called A Call to Action Then and Now, which underscores a very important sentiment, and I can't think of a better way to uplift his legacy than with these two wonderful women. Through her activism and scholarship over many decades, Dr. Angela Davis has been deeply involved in movements for social justice around the world. Her work as an educator, both at the university level and in the larger public sphere, have always emphasized the importance of building communities of struggle for economic, racial, and gender justice. Professor Davis's teaching career has taken her to San Francisco State University, Mills College, and UC Berkeley. She's also taught at UCLA, Vassar, Syracuse, the Claremont Colleges, and Stanford University. Most recently, she spent 15 years at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she is now Distinguished Professor, Emerita of History of Consciousness, an interdisciplinary PhD program, and of feminist studies. Dr. Davis is the author of 10 books and has lectured throughout the United States, as well as in Europe, Africa, Asia, Australia, and South America. In recent years, a persistent theme of her work has been the range of social problems associated with incarceration and the generalized criminalization of those communities that are most affected by poverty and racial discrimination. She draws upon her own experiences in the early 70s as a person who spent 18 months in jail and on trial after being placed on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. She's conducted extensive research on numerous issues related to race, gender, and imprisonment. Her recent books include Abolition Democracy and Our Prisons Obsolete about the abolition of the prison industrial complex, a new edition of Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass and a collection of essays entitled The Meaning of Freedom. Her most recent book of essays called Freedom is a Constant Struggle, Ferguson, Palestine and the Foundations of a Movement was published in February, 2016. She's a founding member of Critical Resistance, a national organization dedicated to dismantling the prison industrial complex. Internationally, she's affiliated with Sisters Inside, an abolitionist organization based in Queensland, Australia that works in solidarity with women in prison. Like many educators, Dr. Davis is especially concerned with the general tendency to devote more resources and attention to the prison system than to educational institutions. It is such a pleasure to have Dr. Davis, Dr. Angela Davis join us today. Dr. Davis, the floor is yours, but you gotta come off mute first. (laughs) The trials of
0: Zoom, everybody. I know, know. (laughs) as much as I keep telling myself, (laughs) unmute. Well, First of all, thank you so much, um, Angela, and to the organizers of this event uh, at Indiana University and the Madam Walker Legacy Center, I wanna thank you for inviting me to participate in your observance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, this year. I'm really especially happy to join my friends, Angela Rye and Alicia Garza. As we think about the importance of the mid 20th century black freedom movement, uh, because this is what we, celebrate when we observe MLK Day. Um, we see ever-increasing evidence that today, the past and the future are seem to be locked in violent struggle. Will the past prevail or will the future unfold as a radical rupture with the racism, the patriarchy, the colonialism, the slavery, uh, the racial capitalism that have shaped the past. As we witness the unfolding of violent clashes between the past and the future of this country, we recognize that the celebration of the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and all those who stood up against racism during the 1950s and the 1960s, that this requires a much more urgent and more Expansive uh, meaning. So I want to I want to share a quote with you, a quotation from the essay Dr. King wrote entitled "The Testament of Hope." It was published posthumously, so it's one of the very last things that that he wrote. Uh, Justice for Black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions, nor from fountains of political oratory, nor will a few token changes quell all the tempestuous yearnings of millions of disadvantaged Black people. White America must realize that justice for Black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. And let me repeat that again. Justice for Black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. And he continued by saying the comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. But in, in, in the few remarks I'm, I'm going to make before we enter into uh, the conversation, I want to say that it's, it's, it's not only the comfortable and the entrenched and the privileged who are afraid of a future of justice and equality, especially because of the destructive impact of global capitalism, of racial capitalism. Many white people who have suffered, who have suffered impoverishment, or know that their children will not even attain the same economic status as they have, um, that. Uh, they, 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 they hold that they, they've been led by the person who has occupied the office of the presidency for the last four years. Only two more days. Uh, uh, we're thankful for that. Uh, um, and they're led by other white supremacists and xenophobes to believe that their misfortunes are a direct consequence of struggles for justice by black people, Latinx, indigenous people, immigrants, and other people of color. And ultimately, they've been led to believe that the future of the United States can be discovered amidst the historical debris of the past. The very slogan, Make America Great Again, is a call to look toward the past. They raise the Confederate flag this anachronistic system of slavery and racism and white supremacy as a hallmark of the future they desire. And of course, as racist and insurrectionist stormed the Capitol uh, during the congressional confirmation of the electoral college presidential votes uh, last week, a man carrying a large Confederate flag was photographed against the ironic backdrop of portraits the portraits of the abolitionist, Charles Sumner, and the ardent defender of slavery, John C. Calhoun. Now, MLK Day has usually been represented as a day of service, when people go out and help the less fortunate. Uh, And if you remember during the eight years prior to this outgoing administration, we were accustomed to watching the then president and his family serve food and soup kitchens or engaging in some other form of community service. And yes, this kind of service is important and necessary, but the last years and especially this last period marked by the COVID-19 pandemic have made it clear that we cannot simply confine our activism to service within existing frameworks. Of course, we want more food for the hungry, more education for those who have been excluded, more housing for the unhoused, more healthcare for the forgotten, but we also want more. If we want a habitable future, we will need to enact what Dr. King called radical changes in the structure of our society we will have to identify the reasons why racism has enjoyed a lifetime of centuries established as the ideological injunction of colonialism and slavery and commanding a status of inferiority for indigenous black latinx and other people of color and embedding that inferior status into every major social economic and political institution of our society. If you've studied the origin of capitalism, you've discovered that this economic system has always benefited from and has helped to reproduce racism. As a matter of fact, many scholars and activists referred to capitalism uh, following the phrase um, coined by Cedric Robinson as racial capitalism. This is why Dr. King insisted that justice would not be achieved without radical changes to the very structures of our society. And of course, the reckoning about which we all hear a great deal since, particularly since the lynching of police lynching of George Floyd and the police murder of Breonna Taylor last May It's about subjecting all of our institutions to critical reflection, not only about racism, but also about patriarchy and homophobia and transphobia. Are our educational institutions reproducing racism in their curricula, in their their admission standards, in their failure to teach students how to engage in ideological critique? how to recognize the persistence of white supremacy, even in the notion that equality consists in making people of color equal to white people. Why is white always the standard? Why is male always the norm? Why has heterosexism been rendered compulsory, to refer to um, poet Adrian uh, Rich? So, we, we have to learn how to identify the structural racism in our healthcare system, in housing, in employment, in recreation, and certainly in our political system. Um, and just a, a few more words the most obvious institutions that incorporate and reproduce structural racism are connected to what is often referred to as the criminal justice system but um, which is increasingly referred to as the criminal injustice system, or maybe simply the criminal legal system in order to challenge the notion that the police, the courts, the jails and prisons uh, meet out equal justice. Uh, racism, of course, has been responsible for what we call mass incarceration. Native people, indigenous people are imprisoned prison at the highest per capita rate of any group of people in our country. Anti-Black racism has literally driven the construction of prisons throughout the country. And even in those states with relatively small populations, you will discover disproportionate numbers of Black men, women, and trans people behind bars. And of course, Latinx people are also disproportionately incarcerated. There have been efforts to reform prisons for as long as they have been in existence, but reforms have never really worked. This is why we have witnessed increasing calls to recognize that so many people are behind bars only because they are black. The call to abolish prisons asks the public to consider the creation of new institutions to better address issues of safety and security. The demand to defund the police is an abolitionist demand. The very history of the police in this country is linked to slavery, the slave patrols, as well as efforts to police newly freed Black people in the aftermath of slavery. The structural racism that emanates from the institution of slavery continues within police departments all over the country the call to defund the police, urges us to imagine new institutions that do not rely on violence or armed human beings. Uh, For example, calling 911, when a person is in a mental health crisis, simply criminalizes psychological problems and often ends up with the injury or death of the person in crisis. So why can we not create new agencies specifically designed to provide aid and assistance by professionally trained period? Professionally trained people. So there's a great deal to do in the coming period. Uh, So I want to leave you with another passage uh, from the essay by Dr. King I quoted at uh, the beginning of my presentation. America has not changed because so many people think it need not change, but this is the illusion of the damned. America must change because 23 million black citizens will no longer live supinely in a wretched past. They have felt the valley of despair. They have found strength and struggle, and whether they live or die, they will never crawl nor retreat again. Joined by white allies, they will shake the prison walls until they fall. America must change.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Davis. I have so many questions, but you know, I'm probably gonna have to call you and set up a backup because I know I don't have forever with you today. Um, But I really just wanna dive in based on where you left off and um, frankly, I think triggers that I'm experiencing right now after the terrorist attack on Capitol Hill, but I'm sure so many of us are. And you started right at the heart of it when you talked about what Make America Great Again is really coming out of. It is this unhealthy um, clinging on to power, that is uh, really an abuse of power. And so when you talk about um, learning how to identify racism in structures, I wanna start with action so I know that we give people something to go home and do. When you um, speak to folks who have benefited from the privilege of white supremacy and white supremacist systems, how do you tell people to start to unpack what racism in structures look like. For those who have walked around blind because they are privileged to do so, what are some of the things that they can immediately do to kind of um, disintegrate (laughs) racism in these structures so they actually do serve us to the point you raised in the one that Dr. King raised in that last writing?
0: Well, you know, uh, uh, most of us, are aware of the fact that uh, for decades and decades, racism has been represented as a um, as an individual defect, um, and you know one of the worst things uh, a person can be called is a racist, uh, and so uh, the work that people have often done to prove that they are not individually racist, uh, you know, participating in unlearning racism workshops and so forth and so on, uh, uh, has been um, the, has consumed, that work has consumed so many of of, of the resources that would have been better directed uh, at the ways in which uh, the um, economy uh, is based on racist, Uh, structures, uh, uh, the universities, colleges and universities, um, the healthcare system, as a matter of fact, this whole conversation about structural racism was initiated as a consequence of the recognition that so many more indigenous and black people and Latinx people were dying as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Uh, So I I think that um, the the fact that these massive mobilizations uh, happened uh, last summer is an indication of a desire, uh, a collective desire to better understand uh, the nature of racism, how it is uh, reproduced, why it is so persistent. Uh, And I would... I, I would uh, point out that um, that oftentimes uh, uh, we we think about racism as um, and we, we think about challenging racism by um, strategies of diversity. Uh, you know, just bring more you know black and Latinx and indigenous people into the institution. Bring more of them into the university. Uh, bring you know more of them them into the corporate world. Uh, uh, and then the problem will be solved. But you're, you're, you're trying to diversify uh, systems and structures that continue to perpetrate racism. You're simply asking those who are the targets of that racism to participate in the process. So, and um, you know a good example that I often use is the, is, is the fact that there is a campaign against police violence in South Africa. Um, and they are confronting uh, the legacies of, of, of apartheid. And, but even though the police are now uh, almost all black, not almost all white the way they were before, um, the same uh, uh, problems of the uh, uh, influence of, of inflicting violence on communities of color, on, 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 on Black people, Asian people, et cetera. This continues to exist in South Africa because it is embedded in the very structures of policing, even though the actors are Black. Uh, uh, we have a long way to go. Um, and and uh, I, I guess I would say that this is work that we really should have begun. Uh, long ago, we should have begun this work in the immediate aftermath of slavery. This is when the work that we're doing now should have started. Uh, uh, And um, uh, I I think that uh, the fact that institutions are recognizing that they need to engage in a process of self-examination and figuring out uh, how to change at the university, for example, curricula, hiring, uh, 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 and uh, how to uh, change admission standards, and, and 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 how to make the university more relevant to a future of justice and equality. Uh. I think I'll stop there. <laughs> it was a big question.
1: No, it, it is and, and part of it even when your response when you started saying that this is work that we should have done right after slavery, I'd argue that we have been doing this work, but there's a the 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 folks who are the perpetuate perpetu, perpetrators perpetua, why can I say this perpetrators of the system um have have not done the work. And as a result, to your point, last summer, and I'm so glad you brought that up, all of a sudden in the year 2020, people can see very clearly COVID-19 has a dis- disproportionate impact on people of color. All of a sudden, Black Lives Matter. Alicia wasn't arguing anymore. People all of a sudden got it to the point where it was in email signature blocks and you know, on basketball courts. And now all of a sudden, it's okay to take a knee on the football field. And so then the question becomes, what next? Because it was popular for a minute and now even some of that is going down and then they want to blame Black Lives Matter protesters and activists and others for why people lost elections um, in, in using defund the police. Now all of a sudden <laughs> we can talk about defund because oh, they're involved with the white supremacist terrorists on the Hill, right? So like, and you, you mentioned this too, you talked about formulating new agencies, which is really some of what defund was about. Um, How do we make this, um, I don't even know if we should be aiming to make it more acceptable, um, more digestible, given the fact that Dr. King called for um, radical changes, as you said, in the structures of our society. What are the things that we can do to make people understand that radical is the only thing that will result in the shift that ensures our long-term survival, viability, functional—you know—ability um, going forward.
0: Well, um, Angela, I think that um, I think you uh, uh, were hitting the nail on the head when you when you said that we have to make these ideas more acceptable. Uh, I mean, it's all we're, we're always engaged in a, a campaign to. Um, transform marginalized ideas and structures into more mainstream ideas. Uh, and let me tell you, as a person who has been an abolitionist um, since the 1970s, uh, uh, I always assumed that abolition was going to uh, remain a you know pretty much marginal phenomenon uh, for you know maybe the next hundred years, maybe a hundred years from now. The work that we're doing would begin to um, uh, turn that idea into a more mainstream idea. And then of course, what happens is that uh, uh, we see uh, George Floyd lynched uh, millions of people participated in a lynching, witness a lynching. And I think that, at, at, at that moment, so many of them realized that despite the dangers of going out and mingling with others in public under the conditions of the of COVID-19, that they felt compelled to speak out, to disassociate themselves uh, uh, from uh, uh, the police. And I'm talking about white people. We've never seen so many white people participating in anti-racist uh, uh, um, demonstrations. Uh. Uh, So, yeah, I think it is important to make these ideas more acceptable. But in the process of becoming acceptable, they're always going to be watered down. They're always going to be transformed. Uh, And so those of us who are really committed to uh, radical approaches have to recognize that. uh, And rather than, as many people uh, do, complain about the fact that our radical ideas have been co-opted, uh, by the status quo, what we have to do is develop more radical approaches, uh, as opposed to criticizing the fact that the corporation defines our ideas uh, in 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 this way that uh, tends to support capitalism. Of course, they're going to do that. That is what they're supposed to do. But but what our role is is to uh, promote the more radical understandings, to do the work, to organize. And I I don't know how many times I've said this, the work that really matters is the work that is generally not seen. Um, Of course, mobilizations are important, but those mobilizations only indicate how important the organizing has been. And when all those people flowed out in, in, into the streets uh, to stand up against structural racism, they were doing so because they were somehow touched by organizers. Uh, they remembered ideas that they had not really taken seriously. They finally began to feel the impact of that. So the point that I'm making is that during this period when there's not a great deal of dramatic uh, visible work happening on our side. It seems like the white supremacists uh, uh, have uh, decided that they want the spotlight uh, now. Uh, uh, What we need to do is to continue the teaching, the organizing, the conversations, uh, to bring more people into the fold. and I, as a matter of fact, I think this is probably the most important period right now when, when um, it appears as if uh, the drama has uh, fallen away. Uh, this is the time to enlarge our, uh, our, 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 our struggles and our communities. Uh, so that uh, the next time we go out in the streets, it, 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 it will be hundreds of millions of people
1: I love that. I'm going to um, introduce Alicia and bring her in because I really want us to have the joint conversation um, and I don't want to run out of time. I have so many more questions, but I am going to turn it over to my good sister, Alicia Garza. Um, Alicia is the co-creator of Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which now has 40 chapters in four countries. She is the author of a new wonderful book, The Purpose of Power. Um, I think you all got it all today. If you didn't, make sure you get one for you, your mom, your dad, your cousins, everybody. She also serves as the strategy and partnerships director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance and is co-founder of Supermajority, a new home for women's activism. In 2018, uh, the Black Futures Lab conducted the Black Census Project, which is the largest survey of Black communities in over 150 years. Black Futures Lab is, is of course founded by Alicia and that Black Census Project was used to inform a Black agenda that is also very powerful and we will get into that. Her activism involves health issues, student services and rights, rights for domestic workers, ending police brutality, anti-racism, violence against transgender and gender non-conforming people of color, and most importantly, that we just matter. Alicia has become a powerful voice in the media and frequently contributes thoughtful opinion pieces and expert commentary on politics, race, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, her work is featured in time so is she as one of the most powerful women and people in time magazine this last year msnbc the washington post the new york times the guardian l and essence um, i skipped ahead because alicia i know your full bio so that's also here right here times 100 women of the year uh, times 100 most influential people also named to bloomberg's 50 bbc's 100 women of 2020 and so many more Um, Again, if you don't have the book yet, please pick that book up. She also shares her thoughtful insights on politics and pop culture on her podcast called Lady Don't Take No. She was raised in Oakland in a mixed race household. Her father is white and Jewish and her mother is black. She graduated from the University of California, San Diego with a degree in anthropology and sociology. And in 2008, she married Malachi Garza, a transgender male activist. And my guy. Alicia warns, hashtags don't start movements, people do. She reminds me of this on the regular. Ladies, gentlemen, distinguished guests, my dear sister, Alicia Garza.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Angela. It's so good to be here with you. Thank you so much to Joyce and the University of Indiana for inviting me. And of course, it is incredible to be sharing a virtual stage with the indomitable Dr. Angela Davis, it's so good to see you, and I really do wish that we were together in person. We need another another Kiki over the kitchen table. There's lots to discuss. Um, I would be remiss if I did not just say I am not born and raised in Oakland. Oakland people are very sensitive about their city. I am a happy. I'm sorry, Oakland. I know that too. it's sorry. okay. San Francisco. I'm a happy Oakland dweller, a longtime, lifetime Bay Area resident, born and raised here. But, you know, Oakland be sensitive about this stuff. So let me just make sure I correct the record. Uh, with that, you know, it, it is no small feat to try and follow after Dr. Davis uh, certainly because she's brilliant and because she's gonna tell you the whole truth and nothing but. Uh, But I do think that my comments for today are related and will help us uh, engage in a broader, more full conversation. Uh, So I'm grateful for the comments that preceded me. I wanna just start off by saying that, you know, I I both love and and, and abhor this holiday. (laughs) Love it because it is an opportunity for us to celebrate the legacy, the life and the lessons of a man who I think has helped us turn politics and political struggle on its head. But at the same time, the the horror of this day is both about knowing that uh, Dr. King was assassinated and murdered uh, by the ongoing legacy of white supremacy, racial terrorism and white nationalism, but also because we spend this day uh, sanitizing the legacy of someone who pushed us like Dr. Davis uh, to be comfortable in what it means to get to the root of the problem so that we can resolve it and start to address new problems that come from resolving old ones. And so I'd like to just note that on this day, you know, we have experienced some incredible peaks and some incredible valleys. And, you know, it's not lost on me that in this moment, we have to continue to say that black voters led this country to important and decisive victories that resulted in a direct challenge to the greatest threat to democracy in an entire generation. Just last week, Black voters in Georgia, sorry, two weeks ago now, uh, secured a victory for the first Jewish senator to ever be elected in that state and secured a victory for the first Black person on a Democratic ticket to be elected to Congress. And that person is only the 11th Black person to serve in the United States Senate. It is an incredible time to be alive. And yet at the same time, it is black power that is sending some in this country into a rage. We should make no mistake that black people amassing power and exercising power poses a direct threat to the white power structure that was created and maintained to keep black people from power, which is why we saw white nationalists descend on the United States Capitol. Demanding that their power be returned, demanding that an unequal distribution of power be maintained instead. That is what they mean when they declare that the election was fraudulent. What they mean is that black people exercising our power is not actually what this country intended when it said freedom and justice for all. That black people voting, and in particular voting for a democracy that can and should include all of us is actually fraudulent for these insurrectionists. And by that, I don't just mean the people who traveled to the US Capitol to wage war against the electors and the United States government. I also mean the people who support them that weren't able to make it that day, right? For them, making America great again is bringing America back to the days when black people were considered to be just three-fifths of a human being and only for the purposes of distributing property and power which was the requirement for participation. You were required to own people in order to be able to have a say as to the direction of where this nation would go. So King's legacy, besides peace and justice, requires that we afford ourselves the opportunity to finally settle upon the truth of what King came to teach us, or we're bound to continue to sanitize his words, his actions, and his lessons. There's too many people today who, upon witnessing the barrenness of white nationalism and white supremacy, would have us believe that now is a time for healing and unity that is void of a truth telling and justice. Many would use this day to remind us to commit to the principles of nonviolence, devoid of context for what nonviolence actually meant to King. Many would use this day to remind us that King was for peace and justice and would use these principles to try and contrast the movement of today from the movement that King helped to build and forward. It is that sanitation of his legacy and lessons that always leads me on this day to share this quote from King, which was written in his letter from a Birmingham jail in April of 1963. He says, first, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizens counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative piece, which is the absence of tension, to a positive piece, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. It's here that King reminds us that we must not resort to the appeals of moderation, moderates who would tell us that justice is for another season. You know, prior to the events at the US Capitol, there were still too many who would purport to be for peace and justice, and yet who would say, that the movement goes too far in calling for a complete transformation of policing and punishment in this country. They would say, I support Black Lives Matter in principle, but I don't support the organization. They would say, we just need better police. But to make these statements in light of what has transpired, not just over the last few months, but for generations in our communities, results in the kind of negative peace that King warned us about. Negative peace allows us to decry injustice without taking the steps to do anything about it. King taught us that we will be distorted and that attempts will be made to delegitimize that which we are fighting for. King himself was called a rioter, a communist, an agitator, a troublemaker. The movement of today understands this very, very clearly as we too are distorted and delegitimized. And for the last week and a half, there have been countless news stories that have compared the treatment that this movement has received and the treatment that those attempting to foment a coup have received. And while I understand the intentions behind all of this, I fear it's the wrong comparison for us to make. What happened at the US Capitol was not a protest for peace, for justice, for dignity and respect. Theirs is not a movement to save lives to put families back together again, to root out injustice. Theirs is a movement to keep power concentrated into the hands of a few. It is a movement that demands the continuation of generations of rigged rules, whether it be capitalism or racism or patriarchy that leave people out and leave people behind. Theirs is a movement to foster division and segregation it is a movement that is fueled by a willful and determined amnesia about the roots of this nation and it is a movement that demands the reentrenchment of white power at any and all costs. The movement for black lives is a movement for human dignity. It is a movement that aims to put more power into the hands of more people, not less. It is a movement that demands that America become what it has promised to be, and it is also a movement that demands that America do better than what it set out to do in the first place. As such, there's really no comparing the two, even to point out disparate treatment. What happened at the U.S. Capitol was not a riot. It was an insurrection, an attempt to overturn the government of the United States, and it was driven and supported by white supremacy. And in placing white white supremacy on display for everybody to witness, the disparate treatment that we have to pay attention to is not just the failure to immediately address the harms that were caused, but we also have to pay attention to the disparate treatment that black people, indigenous people, Latinx people, Muslim people, disabled people, trans people, immigrant people, Asian diasporic people, women, queer people, and a lot more face every single day. King would not want us to see these events as isolated, and he would not want us to flatten our understanding of how this happened, of why it happened. And more than that, he would not want us to divorce ourselves of the responsibility to do something about it, to make sure that it never happens again. So let me stop there, Angela, because I know we have so much to discuss. (laughs) So, so much to discuss.
1: You know, I um, first of all thank you, Alicia. It's so good, and it's like almost like you all wrote these together because it fits perfectly. Um, even starting out saying, I don't know how many people are still triggered by you. both of you re- reference the capital. Um, so here's one question I have from what you just raised. You talked about um, the comparison, really the contrasting that has existed. It's everywhere. It's in our text threads. Between BLM and how BLM protesters have historically been treated since the Trayvon verdict, to um, you know these white domestic terrorists on Capitol Hill, I don't like the comparison either. But sis, I don't know what else to do because it's right in our faces. It's like, are y'all can you not see this? Right. So. What do we do instead of offering to people who can't see the distinction in how it's being talked about in the media, who can't see the fact that it's like, oh, they just feel like there's actual compassion and empathy being shown for people who they're trying to get to know. There's a whole profile piece, you know, our good friend sent us, that is basically exposing that these are not poor white people who are just trying to make minimum wage. These are people who are middle-class with radio shows and dads who have our judges and all of these things. What do we do besides contrasting for people, like how these are not the same things at all. And actually you should not be receiving death threats, right? You and Patrice and Opal should not be receiving death threats for peacefully saying we matter. What do we do? You see I'm unraveling already. What I know. Do we do? I, know. <laughs> I know. Well, first and foremost,
2: let me correct one of my earlier statements. Um, I want to thank the Indiana University, not the University of Indiana, and thank you to the Madam Walker Legacy Center. Um, so there's a couple things, Angela, and I, I feel like when we start to do these comparisons, um, what we're doing again is narrowing what is actually as broad as the breath that we breathe every single day. Rather than focusing on this disparate treatment, we should focus on how we better understand how racism functions in America, right? And to bring us back from uh, these very sensational events that lots of people can identify as racist because they see it as people whiling out and people being mean to each other, right? And that's how racism is understood in this country. And it's exactly why Dr. Davis said that, you know, most people would rather die than be called a racist, right? Because the way that they understand it is the extremes of what we saw at the U.S. Capitol. But what they did there uh, wasn't the best example of racism. It was the reason behind why they were there in the first place. And so we have to pull back and actually say, racism is about rigged rules. And there are lots of nice people who help to advance racist systems every single day. And how do we know that? Because let's look at who showed up at the Capitol building. Let's look at the fact that behind this movement to try and overturn the election, that what they're actually saying is, right? we thought we had rigged the rules enough to keep black people from having this impact. And now we are upset about it because we've lost. So we are trying to take back what we think is unjustly being taken from us. And when they say unjust, they mean black people don't deserve to have this much power, right? Those are the conversations that we need to be having. And I can tell you, just from having those conversations in my own family, that it is not apparent to people, right? How and why racism functions in this country the way that it does. People think that racism is about police unleashing dogs on peaceful protesters, right? But that that is not what racism is. That is a maintenance of racist systems, right? And, And our state will always result to violence if it cannot control by consent. But most of the time, right? most of the time, the way that these systems are upheld is literally by the amnesia in this country where we continue to say things like, racism is about these isolated incidents where people while out and act crazy, as opposed to a, um, the impacts of rigged rules on our everyday lives. Yeah, so I think that's actually what we need to keep focusing on in these conversations, and that's how we'll be able to pull apart, you know, the 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 distinctions here among what was happening with the U.S. Capitol Police, why people are saying this was an inside job. We can pull out the distinctions here of, you know, who? What was the character, the class character, the racial character, the gender character of the people who showed up there? And those are the kinds of profiles I actually want. I don't want to do any more profiles of people who were trying to understand why people are racist. No, I, I actually want to better understand who these folks are so that we can get a clearer picture of what we're dealing with. Otherwise, we will always default to this notion of, well, we should just reconcile without actually getting to the truth in the heart of the matter in the first place.
1: That's also a great point, Alicia. Really quickly, I wanna just um, shout out Alelia Bundles, who is the great, great granddaughter of um, Madam CJ Walker, and she's actually here, and um, she just wanted everyone to know that um, Madam C.J. Walker was not just an entrepreneur, she was also a political activist in the anti-lynching women's suffrage and civil Mm -hmm. rights movements. And of course, um, we definitely wanna give her, um, pay her honor and her respect. And A'Lelia, we love you and support you. So thank you for being here. Um, I wanna go now um, because, you know, transition, we've been in transition, even (laughs) with this terrorist attack on the Hill, which is what brought it about. Um, for some time. And of course, we have inauguration on Wednesday. And as we think about the inauguration and and we think about the great work of Dr. King and how he worked with um, administrations, we know that sometimes in engaging with uh, presidential administrations, it wasn't always an easy road. And I think, Alicia, this is a great um, transition moment to talk about the importance of ensuring that there is still a Black agenda that we are pushing. That was not just electoral work you were doing. That was something that is about um, our placement and our advancement in society, to your point, um, about dealing with structures and not just talking about people wilding out. They will also wild out in policymaking. And so to that end, I want you to just talk about um, the work you're doing with Black Futures Lab around an agenda because to the uh, the question I asked Dr. Davis initially around action, I wanna make sure people have something they can do when they leave here. Um, it's not just about mem- remembering Dr. King's speeches, it's also about remembering his action and the calls to action. So if you would give us some marching orders around the black agenda.
2: Well, absolutely. And as we're moving into hopefully <laughs> a transition in power, Um, The the very first question that we have to take on is, what is it that we will require this administration to do uh, as a result of our communities helping to push it over the finish line? And I can tell you that before the events of the U.S. Capitol, or at the U.S. Capitol, I was very concerned, and I still am very concerned, that for too many of us, we're like, thank you, Black voters, now we're going to go back to doing exactly what we were doing before, which wasn't a lot for Black folks, and it wasn't a lot for folks who are being left out and left behind. And in fact, there were deliberate calls, right, to be moderate, to say, you know, we can't talk about, you know, defunding the police, we cannot talk about health care, because that's going to alienate a lot of voters. And I want to just say for the record, it's just not true. It didn't actually play out in the elections. And we have to make sure that we are keeping the pressure and the fire going, because as Dr. King said, we have a fierce urgency of now. You know, what happened at the Capitol building, in my opinion, uh, it, it, it was indicative, right, of what this next period will look like. I grew up uh, in a period, and I talk about this in my book. Uh, I grew up in the period of, of of Timothy McVeigh, right, and the Unabomber, and people who were intentionally attacking the structures of government, frankly, because they thought that Black people and other people who were considered to be minorities, right, were getting too much, right, and and their whole entire goal was to take that apparatus back and then to dismantle it so that there could be no checks and balances on how wealth is distributed, on how power is distributed and so on and so on. So the Black agenda is really a call for what it looks like to begin to make Black Lives Matter from City Hall to Congress. And it is informed by conversations with more than 30,000 Black people in all 50 states from every political persuasion and ideology from every demographic that you can think of. And it is the place where we can all agree on what needs to happen moving forward. Now, with that being said, I don't think that the Black agenda is the most radical agenda. (laughs) I wanna be really clear about that. It is the things that I think that we can win in this moment that can open up opportunities to win more and more. But I think that the urgency of the Black Agenda 2020 is really that we need some coherence and some cohesion right, around how we translate these slogans into rules that are not rigged, into rules that are actually transforming how systems operate and transforming how governance happens in the first place. So uh, if you wanna take a look at the Black agenda, you can find it at black the 2 the And I think it is a starting place, right? It is very much a floor and not a ceiling. But these are the things that we need to start to hold government accountable to, not just at the federal level, but in our city halls, right? in our state legislatures. We need to make sure that our communities have access to health care, that our communities have access to housing, that our communities have access to education, where the first people they see when they walk into their schools are not police officers, that our teachers and that our frontline workers have an adequate wage with which to support their own families and to live in dignity, where the people who care for the people we care for the most are seen as essential workers and treated as such. Those are the places in which I think we have the most potential to begin to win real things for real people beyond the Democrat and Republican kind of binary that actually doesn't resonate with so many. People need to see change and progress, and this is uh, one of the places where we think we should start.
1: Thank you, Alicia. Dr. Davis, I want to bring you into this conversation around agendas and part of it is because um, we, of course, are on a Zoom for, um, you know, with University of Indiana, Indiana University. Now, Alicia, you messed me up now. Which one is it? <laughs> Sorry, it is Indiana, Indiana University. University. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Um so as we sit here, you know, in 1971, um, black folks from all over the country convened in Gary, Indiana, um, 50 years ago um, to establish a black agenda where delegates were appointed. All of these things um, come together. You think about, the, uh, of course, the Black Panther Party's 10 point program. And of course, Alicia saying, listen, I talked to 30,000 black people all over this country. These are the things. This is the baseline of what we know we need. When we start to think about implementation, 50 years after Gary, um, you know, 402 years now, um, 402 years after we arrived uh, forcefully. So, and then of course, after the emancipation, when black people met every single year to talk about what our agenda must be. When you think about the things that we can do to really ensure we have an agenda that we begin to demand action around, what is our first step?
0: Well, well. First of all, thank you so much, Alicia. I um, uh, love listening to you and um, your trenchant analysis of what we are confronting uh, now. Um, I, um, you know, I'm not the kind of person who tries to figure out. Um, First steps, second steps, third steps, fourth steps. Uh, uh, Whenever someone asks me what is the most important step we can take, my answer is always that there are multiple steps. Uh, There's not simply one thing uh, uh, that uh, uh, we can pinpoint. Uh, And so I suppose I would say that... um, Um, what we do now is a process that is going to determine our capacity to move in radical directions in the future. Uh, So uh, if I were to say there's one thing we have to do, I would say we have to keep the level of collective consciousness as uh, intense as it is today, it might be expressed in different ways. Um, we have to try to encourage everybody who's in, in who, who's concerned, who uh, thinks of uh, themselves as um, committed activists for justice and freedom, to ask what they can do now. Uh, I am. Um, of course, I think healthcare is so important, especially. I mean, we can't forget that we have never experienced this kind of devastation in terms of attacks on our health. Uh, and uh, you know, I understand that um, that the new Biden-Harris administration is going to, you know, try to begin to correct what didn't happen over uh, the last period. Uh, uh, but what we really need is free health care. Uh, we need free health care for everyone. Uh, and, and we also need free education. <laughs> we need free education for everyone. And of course these things aren't going to happen overnight. So we have to ask, how can we uh, begin to unleash a process that will lead us in, in that direction? Um, and so uh, you know, I would say that People on campuses such as Indiana University have to look very closely at their um, the structure of their curricula. Um, they have to stop marginalizing Black studies. And... Indigenous studies and and Latinx studies, uh, these um, interdisciplinary programs have to become central to the process of educating people in this country, as opposed to assuming that, oh yeah, English and history and all of the disciplines constitute the core of education and the other things uh, like feminist studies and black studies, those those are marginal. on campuses, students have to begin to consider that um, police departments on college campuses, college and university campuses all over the country are engaged in some of the worst uh, kinds of racist actions against students and those who are a part of the campus community. So I think that You know, it might actually be easier, I'm I'm kind of thinking aloud now, to dismantle campus police, uh, you know, as a starting point. Uh, You know, just as we've said in the abolitionist movement, that when we focus on abolishing youth prisons and, and juvenile justice facilities, that is a part of a process that can lead to the abolition of the entire system. So I think we need to begin to you know, think in, 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 in those terms and recognize uh, that there is space for everybody who wants to participate here, whatever they see themselves doing. Uh, uh, but but make sure that the mass collective consciousness remains at uh, as high a level as it is at this moment.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I understand the frustration with, the, or the challenges even with the, the steps, I just wonder often, especially over the summer, Alicia, and you know this well, trying to get people to align behind one agenda, you know, or at least like, okay, where are the commonalities? And instead of us being able to focus in on what the commonalities are, people want to splinter off and do their own thing. So when we consider you know, what it would look like to start somewhere does not have to be a first step. Maybe we start with five <laughs> or ten, um, like the Panthers. Just like what do we exactly what, what do we do? How do we, Alicia um and Dr. Davis, where do we start there? Like we the they're about to be sworn in. There are progressives and environmentalists and women's groups and um, Jewish groups, all of which have organized around a similar platform to present to the administration. And I am concerned from what I've seen, personally witnessed, um, and from what I've heard that we're a little behind there again. You know, so how do we, when you start saying, this is where we do the work, right? Dr. Davis is like, this is where we should have started after slavery. Now, here's an opportunity again. Yep. I mean, I think for me, it's less important
2: that we're all doing the same thing and more important that we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. And so, part of what I think we want to avoid in this moment is doing that thing we do under more friendly administrations, where we kind of try to make a race to the table as opposed to making it a race to set the menu and set the agenda. I think, Angela, as frustrated as I get, with um, the calls for moderation, what I can say is that those calls wouldn't exist if we weren't making incredible progress. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. Every door that is closed in my face, I'm saying to myself, well, it's because they are terrified of what happens when we bust through that door, because they know we're gonna do things a little bit differently. Um, So for me, Angela, I really think that it's about making sure that we're in coordination. You know, I run two organizations that are doing very specific things, and I'm not going to be doing the exact same thing that the Movement for Black Lives is doing. But you know what? We talk to each other every single week to get on the same page so that we're not undercutting each other and we're not trying to jump the line from each other, trying to race towards the seat at the table when we know good and darn well that actually what we need to do is flip this table over and have a whole different way of of approaching this. The other thing I think is really important, though, to this end, Angela, is really making sure that we are engaging. It would be easy in this moment to get frustrated and throw our hands up. And I'm going to tell you, I want to do it every day. And you know, I'm, I'm in your phone, cussing, <laughs> getting mad <laughs> in my feelings about what they're not doing and how they're not going far enough and they're not moving fast enough. But the thing for me, Angela, is that everything we leave on the table we are leaving for somebody else to eat and so what we have to be clear about over and over again is that we're not trying to be homies here <laughs> we are trying to lead in this moment and there are millions of people for whom um they don't get to have these conversations and that is the problem so we need to continue to open up the space for more people to be able to weigh in to participate to have their story told and to let their story be shaping what it is that we are pushing i try to remind myself that i am carrying the stories of millions of people right for whom they don't get to do what i'm doing every day all day right they are trying to keep a roof over their heads they're trying to get some child care so they can go to work and make money right and and make ends meet so We have an incredible responsibility to keep feeling that fierce urgency of now, to keep opening up space for bigger and more radical ideas, to not be afraid of telling the truth at all points in time, no matter who it's going to piss off, and frankly, not being afraid to have honest conversations with this administration, both about what they're doing well. We got to do that. We got to give them their propers when they do the right thing but also talking about what they're not doing well and how they need to do it differently. That is actually the process of governance. It is coming up with processes, right? To continue to um, um, be able to distribute resources in a different way, right? Now, resources are consolidated into the hands of a few people and the rest of us are, are fighting over what we consider to be scraps this is the richest country in the world. There is plenty for everybody. And so if we are advancing in that way and understanding that um, we as people who are trying to make change are also not fighting for scraps, right? Then I think it allows us to have a different orientation to this moment. The last thing I wanna say here is that I hope that our, our first order of business beginning on Wednesday and moving forward, Um, is to see ourselves as leaders. Um, I think too often we give up our power to other people. And then we say, we don't have the power to change it. So I'm just gonna go back to what I was doing and I'm gonna be mad. Actually, in this moment, I can guarantee you, none of these people know what to do, (laughs) none of them. So yes, they are picking all these appointees and doing all these things, but I will guarantee you, we are in a moment that nobody has experienced before. And so there is the need for leadership from our movements, from people who haven't been at the table. We shouldn't assume that there's already something locked in place. So keep keep imagining, keep building, and keep seeing ourselves as the architects of the democracy that we deserve.
1: That's beautiful, Alicia. Well said. Um, Dr. Davis, I want to come to you. Um, You were talking about uh, Dr. King's legacy um, recently. And, you know, we see people use content of, of, of judging people by the content of their character. All the, all the time out of context and the I Have a Dream speech, and you reference this where you say, they remember King the doctor orator, but not Dr. King the disruptor of unjust peace. They applaud the Dr. King who opposed violence, but not the Dr. King who called for massive non-white violent demonstrations to end war and poverty in our houses. They applaud his 1963 I Have a Dream speech, and that's the only thing that many people know. They applaud Uh, His 1963 I Have a Dream speech, but forget how, as he told us in a Christmas sermon on peace, not long after talking about that dream, I started seeing it turn into a nightmare. Yes. When you consider that, that he said that himself, we always say that, but he said that himself, how do we ensure that on this holiday, this day on, this day of action, this day that really is the bridge to our next path forward, what do we do to ensure that we are also not participating in the whitewashing of the dream that we really should all realize? Not just the American dream, but the one that Dr. King talked about. Not just the Dr. King dream, but the one that you all have talked about today. What do we do to ensure that we move forward in a way that is beneficial to all people of color in all marginalized communities?
0: Um, Well, you know, first of all, um, uh, since we have this day, and since we struggle for this day, people should not forget that this day was not given to us. Uh, uh, We organized uh, uh, from the moment Dr. King was assassinated uh, until Uh, in 1986, when it first began to be uh, observed. uh, And we were not simply fighting for a day devoted to a single individual. We were fighting for recognition of the black freedom struggle. We were fighting for um, recognition of the black women who made it possible for someone like Dr. King to emerge as the spokesperson of the uh, mid 20th century freedom movement. Uh, And and so um, we will will have to remind people of this uh, because of course, uh, uh, there there are always efforts uh, to uh, water down and uh, um, uh, transform into, Uh, something that is more palatable, uh, uh, these uh, uh, victories that we achieve. Uh, And, you know, I want to add to uh, what Alicia said about what we will have to do once the next, uh, and what is it, two days from now? Today is Monday, on Wednesday, we will have a new administration. Uh, We'll have Biden and Harris. And as much as we have fought for this change in administrations, let's not assume that our work is done. Uh, one of the major mistakes we as a community, as a movement made, was to go home after Obama was elected. And not to not to continue to organize and stand. Of course people organized them. But... But uh, there should have been massive demonstrations against positions of the Obama uh, administration. Uh, uh, we should not have had to, you know, suffer the wars and the deportations and you know all of these things that happen during that administration. So, what we have to do is, I think, to uh, maintain this level of intense collective activism to let uh you know Biden is a is a is a pretty moderate figure right um and 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 we have to not allow his positions to um uh push us back in our struggle for abolition Uh, because he certainly does not represent someone who is going to say yes we have to think radically about the problems of the police in this country, of the problems of, of prisons. So I, um, I, I think that the message we're going to have to uh, convey to people is that if we needed mobilizations and, and, and the emergence of, 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 of this, the, the, these amazing um, um, movements, uh, Black Lives Matter, the Movement for Black Lives, uh, we, this, this is going to be the period where we will really need um, uh, those participants, those leaders, uh, uh, because change, we can glimpse the possibility of change now for the first time, for the first time in my lifetime. And uh, if we go home, uh, uh content that we' finally gotten this person out of the White House who should have never been there before. Um, uh, we recognize that the, the uh, insurrectionists did not um, create the coup that uh, they wanted. Um, uh, but we haven't won. What we've done is we've created the possibility of moving in more radical directions. And we have to engage, organize, mobilize, fight back, create new organizations, strengthen the old ones, uh, uh, do more work than we've ever witnessed uh, in, 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 in our lifetimes. Uh, and it's gonna be very exciting. It's gonna be difficult. Uh, uh, but let's not be afraid to say no uh, to Joe Biden. And let's not assume that just because we have the first black woman vice president in the history of this country, and that's an amazing feat uh, that we can um, shut up and go home and um, you know stop uh, thinking about what it means to uh, organize uh, for uh, future victories. Uh, I think this period it can be really exciting uh, uh, because we're not simply we won't simply be on the defense. We've been on the defense uh, for too long, uh, uh, and um, so yeah, let's um, let's generate the kind of excitement uh, uh, that uh, people like um, Alicia and all of the other you know other really wonderful young um, activist leaders. Uh, 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 During this period, have taught us it's possible. Um, And and, and just one more thing: internationalism. Internationalism. And 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 I uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that we have to strengthen our connections uh, with people who are engaged in the same kinds of activist battles all over the world—in Brazil, in throughout the continent of Africa, you know, black people in Europe. so let's, uh, let's not forget that we're a part of a planet uh, that is striving uh, to uh, move uh, toward justice, equality, and freedom.
1: Alicia, I'm gonna come to you. I know that we are um, winding down, but if there's a, a call to action that you have, um, one of my favorite um, Dr. King speeches is, where do we go from here? And I think for both of you, that's what I would like to ensure we leave Indiana University with today. Um, where do we go from here, Alicia, from your perspective? Once we get on the other side of inauguration on Wednesday, prayerfully, um, where do we go from here? Well, I think where we go from here um, is
2: really deciding what kind of not just future, but what kind of present we want. Mm-hmm. You know, um. Where do we go from here? Chaos or Community was one of Dr. King's last books that he wrote while he was alive. And in it, he talks a lot about um, the need for white communities to really reckon and grapple with what needs to be done to dismantle uh, this adherence to white supremacy that is literally tearing this country apart at the seams. And I think that that is a big task. I, I think black communities are often asked, "What's next? who what you gonna do?" And I just feel like we're doing a lot, okay? <laughs> we're doing a lot. But for this multiracial democracy that we need, and when I say that, I mean, for the entirety of this country, the rules have been made by old white guys about you and me. We are pushing for that to be different, not just in symbol, but in substance, having more people at the table who can make and design rules that govern us all that reflect the complexity of our experiences and our needs. For that multiracial democracy to be real, we actually need white folk and white communities to have a reckoning that they have not had yet. I think that white communities are a critical part of a multiracial democracy, particularly anti-racist white communities. And so we have to get to work. And I know Dr. King talked about the same thing in in where do we go from here? And I just couldn't agree more. Mm
1: -hmm. Dr. Davis, where do we go from here?
0: Oh, um, I I thought I had... um sort of address that. In, but I already in, answered that. That's okay.
1: Question. <laughs> I did.
0: But let me say that I think Alicia is absolutely correct in pointing out that there have to be major transformations among white people in this country. Uh, uh, and that um, organizations like uh, Surge uh, stand up for racial justice uh, that are committed to doing organizing among white people to uh, develop the kind of um, strong um, anti-racist positions uh, that are actually rooted uh, in historical legacies. You know, people like John Brown and Prudence Crandall and and, and the white women who said no to lynching uh, in the name of of, 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 of white womanhood. Uh, so there are many examples in our history. Uh, white people have to begin to recognize that this is their problem. Uh, uh, they can't simply be allies, and I know we like to use that term, uh, but they have to recognize that they have as strong a stake in a future of justice uh, and, and, and equality and freedom as anyone else.
1: I, um, I thank you all both so much. I've mentioned again, um, Dr. King's famous speech from 1967. Where do we go from here? In that speech, he defines power as the ability to achieve purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we all can say, based on everything that we've learned from Dr. Davis and Alicia Garza today, we know that we have that ability and it is innate within each and every one of us. Another good key to power is to get that book, Alicia Garza's um, The Purpose of Power. It is a wonderful book and will also help you to understand your power. Our power does not look like what we saw on Capitol Hill last week. That's the power we're trying to dismantle, and they know it, hence what happened on the Hill last week. But that said, we hope that you all will go away from here um, understanding the importance of the power that you embody. Understanding the importance of building coalitions, international coalitions, to Dr. Davis's point, so that we can all get rid, shed oppression, white supremacy, white privilege everywhere and begin to dismantle the structures, not just the label of racism, but the thing that ensures that people stay in power and abuse it. We thank you all so much for your time, Indiana University and the Madam C.J. Walker Legacy Center. We thank you all so, so much for having us. Appreciate it.